Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome back to One Guy, One Roll. As always, I am your host, player, and GM, Hero Cities. Today, we are doing something a little bit different. Today, we're going to be playing the first episode of Season Zero. Season Zero is something I've come up with that will allow me to play a variety of different types of games that are a little bit different from the standard show, which is much more structured and designed to be played following an ongoing story, much like with Iron Sworn Starforged following the story of Nikora Sokolov. My intention is for Season Zero to be much more raw and unfiltered with significantly less effort being required on my part with post-production editing and other stuff like that, which just quite frankly takes more time than I really have available at this time. I don't mind, in fact, I quite enjoy sometimes the more in-depth and time-consuming editing that goes into the main seasons of One Guy, One Roll. However, with Season Zero also known as One Guy, One Roll, One Shots, it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be less edited, less refined, as I mentioned before, so just be aware of that going into it. But I'm really looking forward to it. There's a number of different types of games I have in back catalog on my shelf that I've been wanting to play, and we're going to start it off with a really rather unique little, what are they called, zines games called Artifact. This is something that I kickstarted along with Bucket of Bolts a couple of years ago from Mousehole Press. The whole thing comes in a very small format about the size of an index card and highly recommend you go check it out if you're at all interested. I don't think it's currently available in print but the digital version should be available. If you did end up wanting to get the physical copy which I have, I highly recommend it. It's very high quality, very well-made stuff, as is everything in general from Mousehole. So before launching on in, I'll read to you off the back of the instructions a little blurb. Artifact. You rest, fallen or discarded in the dirt, but your body is not flesh, and you are not mortal. So you wait. Seasons pass in flashes, cold following heat, Rain following drought, death following birth, until one day your wait is over. Someone lifts you from the detritus, inspecting you, feeling your weight in their hands. They decide to keep you, becoming your keeper. Through them, you experience the world. You see them undertake great quests, or perhaps commit atrocious sins, all with your aid. You almost forget the long time spent in the dark until inevitably you return. And rest, fallen or discarded in the dirt, you do not know how long you will wait for someone new to arrive. And that is, in essence, the premise behind Artifact. We're not playing heroes or even a person, but in fact playing as one of these artifacts. It's definitely a different style of game than your traditional role-playing game and my intention is to just do a 
one shot of it, hopefully in one go. And uh, if you all are interested in this kind of content and want to see more of it, I plan on doing more of these style of one shots. So without further ado, let's get into it. Artifact starts off with choosing your artifact. Choose an artifact to create. Each is an archetype of a sentient magical item. They have thoughts and desires and can communicate directly or otherwise with their keepers. Keepers are the wielders of the artifacts. An item cannot act alone. It requires somebody it can act through. In this case, the keeper who the artifact is shackled to. This is a story about the artifact, but also about those who wield the artifact, the keeper. The game itself comes with little index cards of each of the artifacts, which I have here in front of me. So I'm going to mix them up. By the way, the artwork on these individual cards is gorgeous. And I'm just going to choose one at random. See what we get. All right. We got the staff. The staff is a conduit of magic, a focus for arcane power. You were formed through a mysterious ritual by a powerful wizard. Describe them, the nature of their magic and ritual. Then add three traits describing your item, then draw it. Adorn the drawing with crystals, teeth, and other curious fetishes. I will tell you right off the bat that even though you're not going to be able to see my drawing, you're not missing anything. I am at best a stick figure level artist, so it's going to look pretty bad. All right, I've finished my drawing, and long story short, it looks like a gnarled, twisted up staff. Kind of like um, like a wizard staff from Lord of the Rings, but more natural, more primal. Up and twisted along it are these bands that run through it. Bands of power of a different color of wood than the rest of the staff. The Most of the staff itself is made of like a white birch, some very bright white wood. While this band that runs around the outside giving it almost ribbing, is of some dark wood, like cherry or oak or something like that. At the top, this gnarled old branch kind of, not bursts, but explodes outward with these like tendrils of wood, gnarled fingers grasping towards the sky. Coming off the tops of these tendrils, these branches out of the top of the staff, are... Leaves. Not a lot, but a few leaves of the most bright, vibrant green, like a brand new bud that has just opened up forth, like of a fresh, healthy springtime tree. Other than that, this staff is very simple. The traits I've used to describe it are druidic, curious, and natural. My creation occurred far outside of the known boundaries of civilization. Outside of these walls exists a wild world, a world far removed from the bustling and busy cities of the Empire. Deep within the woods and wild lands, a small group of druids lived, minding their own business, taking care of the woods around them. These druids, now at threat by the ever-expanding borders belonging to this great empire selected from amongst themselves 
one of the most powerful of their order. This elderly man, with a beard to match the longest of mosses, sacrificed himself in order for me to grow, shed his own blood upon the ground where my roots soaked it up. His life essence and magic poured into me as the sapling I was growing deep within that magical forest. His body buried beneath me, absorbed into me. I still feel his life energy and magic coursing through me to this day. Not a dark ritual, but one of life. The druids continued to take care of me as I grew from supple sapling into a strong, sturdy branch and eventually sprouted leaves of my own. At that point, the druids who remained had not the heart to harvest me and take me from the soil and continue to love and revere me. Sentience is hard to measure. Was I sentient at this point before being wrenched from the earth? Did I acknowledge the passing of time, the changing of seasons, the nesting of birds within my leaves? I know not. I do know, however, that after some time, the druids disappeared. They were no longer there anymore. Time had changed. Time had moved on. And then the first of many I shall call keepers removed me from that grove which I had known. Each and every leaf, each and every bug on each and every tree. How can a being even know curiosity, being shackled as such, to one patch of soil, surrounded by a ring of the same trees within the same forest? No, I am different now. I have grown curious about what's around the corner, and for that I can only thank the one who wrenched me free. This young brash aristocrat of noble birth known as Marcus Livy was surveying land at the behest of his father granted to their family for service to the military of the now unchallenged and undefeated empire which stretched across the entirety of the known world. Those druids who cultivated me, who grew me with the blood of their own, merely absorbed into this ever-growing military might. Marcus Livy, treading through these long-forgotten woods, looking to exploit it for timber to feed the ever-growing power of this military nation, stopped before me, stopped in the strange, too-perfectly-circular grove, and stared for a long time, having no words to say, and having not seen another in an unknown number of seasons. I reached out with all of my might, causing a new leaf to sprout from the top of my tallest tendril. Taken aback at first, yet never fearful, Marcus claimed me by right of birthright and wrenched me from the ground. At this point, disconnected from the soil, disconnected from the earth, I was finally free, yet at the same time, doomed. The once great house of Livy, once created powerful members of the old republic, this once great house, now merely nothing more than a flicker of their past power and command, are yet another of the countless hundreds 
of figureheads that make up the Senate in this great empire, agreeing to the whims and demands of the great emperor with little regard for practicality or the actual use of what they're doing for fear of losing the coveted position. These hundreds of other families squabbled against that of Livy, feeling my strange powers coursing through him when he picked me up. Marcus began to think of the possibilities of the uses he might have for me. Finally free from the constraints of being within the great forest, my mind could not comprehend the scale of the Libby family villa. Dozens upon dozens of rooms with hundreds of people milling about doing their daily tasks. It was overwhelming, and I studied them and watched them, not so different from the various insects crawling around in the ground or the beetles making their way through the barks of trees. Young Marcus Livy brought me to his father, brought me to his father, who was full of wrath for the young Livy, bringing him some stupid stick he found out in the woods. An argument ensued, and before long, the forlorn and scolded Marcus retreated to his wing of the compound. There I sat for many years. Old man Livy died. Marcus took over. The timber operation boomed. Acres upon acres of wood cut down, burned, turned into planks and farmland. My home. Well, my home no longer. Over time, I found ways to display my feelings, to bring Marcus back to me, now a middle-aged and powerful senator in his own right. I made myself known to him. My abilities, while subtle, were helpful. Simply called the rain stick. Marcus coerced me to use my powers to drown out the crops, the fields, the lands belonging to various noble rivals and families, while using modest rainfall upon his own newly plowed fields, built upon the remains, the charred remains of the grove I once called home. This Marcus Livy never quite unlocked everything I could do, kept me as his secret rain stick, showing to nobody, took me out, shook me around, and I would do what I needed to do. It was a simple life, one where I sat mostly unused in a dusty back room. However, I was still able to watch, listen to the wind, to learn the ways of these people so different from my druids. Over time, the neglect and lack of sunlight left my leaves to wilt and my bark to grow discolored and solo. These times of being left alone without the feeling of the rain, without the chirping of the birds, the crawling of the insects, left alone, hung up on some back wall of some lonely villa were the hardest I had yet to do. Although I did learn much at my time hanging on that wall, listening to the comings and goings of the petty squabbles of different individuals, different families, different peoples of this empire. The always superior feeling and overly confident Marcus Livy, over time became frail and old, a frail old man 
who had intended to pass everything he owned onto his sons. His sons, who, like him, reveled in the petty squabbles of the various noble houses, would have continued this ongoing tradition forever, going from one generation to the next, using me as the rain stick I'd become. However, that's not the way my story goes. For although eventually the old man Marcus Livy died, and I, like all else, was given on to his eldest son, who, like his pompous father, would likely have done nothing more than keep me hanging on that wall, slowly wilting away and transforming into nothing but dust. However, history had another plan, and it was not long upon the death of the old man Marcus that things became rather turbulent around the Libby house. Rumors were swirling of a massive horde of filthy, dirty barbarians who were bearing down upon the once proud and unshakable empire, never defeated in battle, never cowed before anything. These hordes of men, sweeping across the countryside, were soon upon our doors, battering them down and hauling away everything they could, myself included, along with the house treasury and all of the house women, carted off on the back of a horse, For more miles than I knew the entire world could be, we traveled. We traveled through the fields that were on fire, through another destroyed and burned town, through woods, across a mighty raging river, and finally settled into my new home. We have resolved our first keeper. And at this stage of the game, we are instructed to take a rest. Just to close your eyes, be quiet. There's even a soundtrack that goes with it for the appropriate amount of time. Now, I think this process of being looted and carted across the world takes about a week. For a week, the rest is 10 seconds. Now, I'm not going to put 10 seconds of silence. So if you want to participate, pause the podcast for 10 seconds. There's even a soundtrack that goes with the game. If you have that available, play the week rest. I'm going to do so right now. The idea is to rest and think about the silence and the solitude of abandonment. I hope that you took the time to sit and reflect on that rest. I know the music that is included with the game is powerful. This is a short amount of rest. As the time progresses and... The ages of the world move on. These rests will grow longer and longer and no doubt become even more meaningful and impactful as they do so. Strapped to the back of a horse, tangled amongst the various treasures and gold and precious trinkets looted from the house of Marcus Libby, I finally feel first drops of rain I have felt in many, many long years, stretching with all my might towards the falling rain. I soak it in, loving each and every drop as it falls upon my leaves, leaves that were once wilted and dying, spring back to life, firming up, reaching out, grasping, wanting, demanding more of this life-giving water descending down 
from the clouds above. This strange behavior from what looks to be some old man's walking stick captures the eye of the red-haired, big-bearded, barrel-chested man who led this raid upon the Libby household. He senses something special about this staff, something different even beyond the various gold and other trinkets captured in the raid. When the men began to divvy up the loot, all he wanted was me. All he wanted was the strange staff. Mocked and laughed at, for he had first choice of all the loot. He knew the true power when he finally picked me up and held me in his hands. My second keeper, my revolutionary leader, the wild barbarian, Hrothgar, son of Beothol. With a fiery personality to match his fiery red hair and beard, this hulking bear of a man, having been successful in uniting all of the tribes across the great river, was leading a revolution against the always and ever oppressive empire. My fate was to be that of a simple rain stick no more. My fate was no longer to be hung on the wall of some dusty back room belonging to an ambitious yet short-sighted noble. No, I was free outdoors, free with this wild band of wild raiders attempting to create something different than the current social system that treated them as no better than working cattle. Although they shall do so through bloodshed and war, this tribe, this group of tribes, led now by Hrothgar, son of Beothol, subscribe to a different type of civilization than the Empire. One man and his corrupt officials is not the way here. Here men vote with their voices, yelling out their support or disagreement with Hrothgar's actions. While certainly not a democracy, it is at least open and fair. If men don't like what Hrothgar does, they leave, making the tribe weaker, perhaps even inviting open warfare. This empire they're fighting against would see them relegated to nothing more than dogs or cattle to grow fat and be harvested from, their lands to be pillaged, their young men sent off to war, never to be seen again, except perhaps to one day crawl back, crippled, wounded, and with that once prideful spring of youth, nothing more now, long forgotten by the untold years of war. These tribes of wild barbarians, more civilized, it seems, than the Empire itself in many ways, understood who I am, understood the power I could control. The various shamans of their society poked and prodded at me, planted me in the ground, but never harmed me, never plucked my leaves, let me soak up as much sun and rain as I could, and I once again grew strong, powerful. My bark grew thick and furrowed, and my leaves were strong and green. Upon the next spring, Hrothgar rode at the front end of a horde of these so-called barbarians. Barbarians in name only, but in spirit tied to the land, tied to this force that they have become, this tide of change sweeping across the land. 
our first encounter with the disciplined and orderly soldiers of the Empire, never having lost a battle, not believing their eyes at the wild fury of these crazed individuals, underestimated our power. Upon the eve of our first battle, I inspired Hrothgar to take me high above, climbing the tallest hill around. There, I conjured a wind, a wind which drew in all manner of beasts, fur and feather from the woods around. This great tidal wave of teeth and claw smashed into the rear of our enemies, who could not believe their eyes. It was as if the forest itself had risen up against them. It was nothing more than a slaughter. Many great and powerful men lost their heads in the Empire, blaming each other for their loss. The truth is, the smell of rot and decay has already set deep within the Empire. I spent many years in that grove, watching it happen around me. Sometimes things need to change, and at Hrothgar's hands, we were going to be the change this world needs to see. Victory after victory we won against the seemingly endless legions of the Empire. The battle took us all the way to the capital, a sprawling metropolis of hundreds of thousands, more people than anything I could have ever imagined. I thought the villas of Marcus were substantial. Then the hordes being led by Hrothgar seemed even more so. No, this great eternal city, stretching as far as the eye could see. This was something else. People numerous, more numerous than the ants in the soil. The insidious rot, the cancer at the center of the sprawling empire. Hrothgar meant to cut it out with a knife, carve it out fresh, build anew. We struck in the dead of night, bribing guards, killing others. We stole deep into the heart of the city, setting fires as we went, killing, murdering our way through. We eventually made it to the giant, sprawling palace in the center. Many of Hrothgar's men were cut down by this point. He thought that decapitating the head of the Empire would cause its collapse, would cause the change he meant to see, would cause something to happen. He was so wrong. All of this was for naught. For although Hrothgar stood tall with me, lightning flashing down through the city at my behest, the dead Emperor at his feet, swarms of guards charging through the palace to find us, I didn't even get to bear witness to his execution. I didn't get to bear witness to much. I was lost yet again. Discarded, misplaced is nothing more than a simple branch of a tree. I was lost once again, alone, to time. My time with Hrothgar was short. Nothing more than a passing season or two. However, during this time, despite the pointlessness of it all, the return to the status quo. No one yet has quite left an impact upon me that Hrothgar did. His unyielding courage in the face of adversity, his natural charisma and intelligence. He has changed me, where once I was simply fine to stand and do nothing for eternity, like a tree, battered by the wind, fed by the rain and the sun. Now I have desire. I have the desire to be wielded again by someone like Hrothgar, to be a change for good, 
I think it was good. It must be good. Why else would have I been there? I enthusiastically await my next. I stretch out as far as I can, my leaves trying to touch the sun, and yet I rest again, this time even longer than the first time. Tumbling from Hrothgar's grip at the time of his, being apprehended by the guards at the palace, I tumbled away down the hill of the palace, settling there at the bottom in a gutter full of mud and shit where I lay yet again. As the gutter fills more and more, I sink deeper and deeper into the refuse left by centuries of humanity. Time passes strangely, quickly yet an eternity. Many, many moons go by, yet I counted them, each and every one of them, a decade's worth of moons. This time, we are going to rest for a decade. That means one minute of silence. Like before, I'm not going to make you wait for a minute here, but pause the podcast, sit in contemplation for a minute. If you want, close your eyes. The music, once again, provided by Mousehold Press is absolutely fantastic if you have it. But otherwise, sit for one minute. Think about silence and the solitude of abandonment. A decade has come and gone. As the years go on, lying in this filthy ditch, covered in shit and refuse and all other manner of debris, we have plenty of time to reflect upon the nature of magic and how it relates to the human condition. Simply put, anyone is capable of magic. You're not born into it. You're not special if you can do it. It simply takes belief and hard work. This secret, a secret I know, a secret I keep for myself, for the fear of its devastating potential upon the world. Somebody drunk off that magic could watch the world burn. The few users of magic who have existed, some have done great good, some have done great evil. Regardless, it is powerful and potentially devastatingly dangerous. Even in a short amount of time as a decade, things can rapidly change. An empire can fall. A new warlord can be born. Riding in on sweating horses, armed with short bows, these wild conquerors tore down an empire, threw it down into the muck and grime, burnt to the ground around me as I sat in the ditch full of shit and grime. Luck, once again, became of me. A storm of unprecedented power and fury washed through the devastated city, exposing me, lying in the ditch, washing me down upon the shores in front of this monumental army, this monumental army of horses and archers. The heavily armed, slow-moving columns of the empire could not withstand the forces of swift horseback-mounted archers as they rode circles around them, peppering them, stinging them like so many small insects, washed down the gutter and swept onto the shore of the river. I was discovered, discovered by a woman, a woman washing clothes in this river, a woman who noticed something strange about me, something 
that didn't quite make sense. Not a simple tree branch, perhaps. Perhaps it was the way my leaves dance on their own accord. Perhaps it's the strange markings along my body. I don't know. This washing woman, washing the clothes belonging to the conqueror, brought me to him as a gift. At first, this seemingly wild and untamed warrior merely scoffed at this washing woman, laughed at her gift, but even he could not throw me away. There's something about the nature of my power, my own innate curiosity about the world, about these strange humans who pick me up and carry me around, bleeds off into them. The name of this powerful warrior, Kursik the Conqueror, is young and wild and fierce on the battlefield, yet at the same time, honorable. I myself witnessed him spare the lives of his enemies, not even stripping them of their arms, but allowing them to go home, heads held high. All they had to do was take the knee and swear fealty to this new conqueror. Kursik knew how to lead people, knew what it took to be a powerful warlord. His empire, however, was like a wildfire in the monsoon season. It burned fiercely hot, sweeping across the land. However, the cracks were already beginning to form, burning cities to the ground that resisted him, sparing those who surrendered. At first, seemed to work in his favor. However, as the years turned into a decade, those people he left behind organized themselves into rebellious groups. The small number of wild horsemen could not really hold together something as large as the empire. And in his middle age, these pockets of resistance grew. Rarely uniting, the warlord would travel from region to region, slaughtering all who resisted. They were given one chance to surrender. When refused, every last one of them were put to the sword. Although naturally this fierce and ambitious warlord favored the bow and the spear, before long he learned through experimentation with this strange magical staff of, that I am of the wonders I could do. The very subtle nature of my magic, of my creation, the background of the shamanistic traditions that created me, melded well with Kursik's own beliefs. They were very similar to the shamans who had originally conceived of me. Seeing the power of nature and the destructive effects it can have in person on the wide open sprawling grasslands that these fierce nomadic tribes grew up on. This fierce tribe Kursik belonged to, while of course being led by him, had a council of elders who actually made most of the decisions regarding this fledgling empire they were scrabbling to put together. These elders, these wizened old men, for some reason respected Kursik more when he had me. I was used mostly as a political tool, something he could wave around and display his connection to these powerful nature gods, these nomadic people worshipped. I know nothing of the divine. I know nothing 
of whether or not gods are real or they can walk the earth and talk like these humans do. I do know, however, that I have the ability to enhance curiosity in people or enthusiasm. These are the things I can do. I was able to convince these old men, this council of elders, over the years to make decisions to restore the natural world, tear down the walls, these cities of stone and metal that had grown up across the empire, go back to the more natural and migratory nature at which these tribes came from. This was my motivation, and perhaps I was wrong. For as I came to learn, these edifices of stone and down timber are what bind people together. The world is not like that which I grew up in, which I was born into, in a circle of trees deep in the woods. No, no, it's not anymore. The world has changed. And with the tearing down of these cities, at the dusk of Kursik's life, everything fell apart. Petty men with petty ambitions, driven out of their cities as they were torn down stone by stone. A half century of this led to resentment and tribalism. Kursik himself, jaded in his old age, having personally ordered the death of untold thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, their blood soaking into the ground, shot with arrows as a form of execution. While I cannot blame myself entirely for this, I cannot change the way the man was thinking, his actions. Perhaps I did overplay his enthusiasm, overplay this desire to return back to nature, what has been conquered by man. During the half a century Kursik and I were together, I saw the evolution of a man from a brash, tireless, and enthusiastic warlord into a middle-aged, drunken fool, and finally a depressed old man watching this false empire around him slowly crumble and fall apart piece by piece, especially as his children fought amongst themselves to try and reclaim what was once a piece of glory held by their father. I specifically remember one of these drunken occasions when Kursik had taken to the bottle after finalizing his vanquishing of the empire, traveling around crushing these petty rebellions time and time again, he fell into the bottle. One of these nights, he usually would bring me with, whether as a token or merely a comforting item, or perhaps to show off. I know not. However, at the coaxing of his friends, the drunken Kursik broke me in half, splintered me right down the middle, much to the chagrin of his drunken friends, who had heckled him about the unmanly nature of carrying a staff instead of a sword or a spear or whatever. This was a dark time for me. I know not of pain. I know little of fear. However, I did know darkness. I knew nothingness, except for the snap of my back across this powerful man's knee. Luckily, the shamans of Kursik's clan, or tribe, or empire now, knew something of magic, at least the whispers of it. They could hear its calling upon the wind, 
although they could not harness it much themselves beyond small, simple parlor tricks. They advised Kursik to take me into the woods, plant me as one would a tree, and leave me for a year out in the rain and the sun, which would hopefully facilitate my healing. It did, luckily. However, at the same time, it left me with a great scar running down all the way from the very top where my branches are to the point at the bottom. This scar would remain for the rest of my time. Cursic scar, as I would now call it. And although my power would not be diminished from this callous act, it would invite further structural weakening, like cracks in a great oak. However, my time out in nature, connected once again to the soil, the wind, the rain, and the sun, healed this wound, but left the scar behind. However, during my time away from Kursik in the woods, I discovered something. Where Kursik had planted me back into the soil, it's one of the most wonderful things I've ever seen. Traveling far outside the boundaries of his kingdom, his empire, not out into the great stretches of grassland of his ancestors. No, north, over the great river, even past what were once the tribes of Hrothgar roamed, far beyond the foothills of a great mountain range, into these towering ancient woods full of pines that could almost whisper to each other thoughts, feelings, words. Never have I seen anything like this outside of the grove which I was created. Almost a magic filled the air, a mystery. The shamans of Kursik led him to this place, and they were right, for without this energy, this magic, and mysterious nature of this place, I would never have been made whole again. As usually happens, when one man unites an empire, the fractured nature of his domain, the rebellions, now approaching his 70s, Kursik died, the once great powerful warlord who had the entire world at his beck and call, succumbed to a simple illness, and although his funeral was attended by many countless thousands, his dozen sons were already planning to stab each other in the back, as they all, despite their father's wishes, broke apart the empire and warred for decades upon decades, while I sat forgotten and neglected deep within the tomb of Kursik, along with countless other priceless artifacts and jewels. This tomb, known to few, deep within a great mound on the endless grassy lands that he once called home, was forgotten about. Over time, the fresh-tilled earth grew grass again, becoming one of the countless hundreds of thousands upon millions of rolling hills that dot these endless grasslands. And so I rested in the tomb of my keeper, in the darkness so far away from the light that I crave for centuries. Once again, if you have access to the wonderful soundtrack from Mousehole Games, I recommend closing your eyes and playing the Centuries track. 
you will reflect upon the melancholy nature of being abandoned within a tomb of earth and soil. Maybe, just maybe, you can make out the sounds of distant rain or trickling water dripping from the ceiling into puddles on the floor. Even if you don't have access to the soundtrack, I recommend taking three minutes, close your eyes, and reflect upon this time. Centuries go by. Some of the artifacts around me turn nothing more than dust or become so rusted that they're indistinguishable from the dust and grime that surrounds us. Over the centuries that follow, dust and rust has settled in. Although I cannot rust, centuries of waiting and change around me as time ever so slowly marches on. After the first hundred years, somehow whether through a gap in the tomb door or something that has merely made its way through the thick layers of soil and rock above me, spores made their way into the tomb. Fungal spores from a simple white mushroom. I sat and I felt these spores land and coat the area. These boring domestic mushrooms grew and grew as their fungal mats spread, further demolishing, destroying, and changing this environment around me. I regret part of my actions with my keepers. Nature is destructive. Nature causes destruction all the time to affect people. I don't wish to be this way anymore. I wish to try and help people, provide healing for people. Over the next century, this fungal mat spread, finally reaching me, and these fungus began to grow upon me. I let them. I could have fought them. I embraced them, and in doing so, I changed them. These boring white mushrooms began to grow and grow and grow, changing as they did so. Once small, now towering over the rest of the tomb, filling it with their spores. These spores, when inhaled, I think, will change someone, expand the mind, and heal the body. That is my intention. I wish to move beyond my powers of destruction. I wish to become a force of healing of good for these people. Now fully integrated into my wood, I am dotted with these mushrooms. Perhaps someday, if I am ever discovered again, they can be used for good. But for now, they continue to grow and change the way I look. So with this, I will be changing my drawing of the staff, which now has the split down the middle uh, from Kursik. We now will have little mushrooms growing all over us. Our leaves, while still green, are beginning to fade from lack of sun and water. They've gone from a bright, vibrant green to kind of a dull, off, yellowish green. Sickly, but not dead. Now changed, becoming more and more unrecognizable from my original form. I lost track of time. Definitely centuries, perhaps millennia, I know not. I do know, however, that during this time, 
my time of isolation. The world, as it always does, changed. Gone were these great, sprawling, worldly empires. Gone were the trappings of civilization. Gone were the roads. Gone were the shipping lanes. Everything had crumbled into ruin. However, something awoke in the world during this time. Something I, being isolated in this tomb, missed. The world was awakening. Something magical was stirring. Animals were changed, transformed into hideous monsters. People were born with innate gifts of magic, no longer having to spend a lifetime to perform simple parlor tricks. The world was awakening, and it had passed me by. However, eventually my isolation came to an end. And it came to an end, suddenly, without warning, with an explosive bang, blowing open the side of the mound I have long laid within. Scorching, burning light spilled into the tomb for the first time in hundreds of years. Washing over my now fungal-spotted body and slowly withering leaves brought a rush of excitement and enthusiasm I haven't felt for a very, very long time. This daring, red-headed woman, known as Antoinette Dubois, was unlike anything I had seen in the previous centuries. She was dressed with a tricorn hat and a long, tapering coat with tails on the end, wielding this strange bow that was turned on its side with a trigger. I would later learn is called a crossbow, and strapped to her hip a wicked-looking curved blade. Quickly glancing around the tomb and determining that her quarry was not present, Antonent quickly scoops up whatever few remaining treasures there are, turning to rapidly leave this uncovered tomb. I, longing to be rediscovered by a keeper, reach out with all of my will, all of what dormant power I have laid here maintaining all these centuries, and I manage to rustle my leaves. She turns at the sound, and seeing this piece of wood not decayed, with strange glowing fungus growing up it, shrugs, picks me up, and carries me out of the tomb. Shockingly, she works alone, merely herself and her horse and whatever trinkets she's managed to scrape together, tossed into various saddlebags along the sides. Before long, I learn she's a monster hunter. Monsters have appeared in the world over the last hundred years. Although many folktales tell that they have always been here, but have merely been agitated for some reason. I personally do not remember ever encountering any monsters myself. However, they are here now, and she belongs to a guild, a guild dedicated to hunting and slaying these various monsters. At the request of various individuals or communities who then, of course, pay these monster hunters for their services. Her guild, in particular, is known for their distinctive tricorn hats. These hats have various decorations on them to help display what rank you are within the guild. It's all rather 
bureaucratic and convoluted. But suffice to say, she's fairly well regarded and had to kill numerous creatures in order to achieve the rank she has. In her hat, she sports a brightly colored peacock feather. Before long, I learned that she is hunting one of the most terrifying monsters to ever plague the land. Something they have been calling a manticore. A horrific beast with wings attached to the body of a lion with the tail of a snake that spits horrific venom. She has been chasing rumors and the various trails of destruction left behind by this creature for the better part of the year. Her latest discovery brought her out to the rolling fields of grass where the tomb lays. Rumor has it this manticore has burrowed into the side of one of these mounds to make its lair. That is why she came into the tomb to begin with. That is why my newest keeper, Antoinette, discovered me. Her goal in killing a creature as powerful and dangerous as a manticore, to ascend from the rank of journeyman to a master of the guild. Not the Grand Master, but nonetheless, it is something that she greatly desires to achieve. If one was even to give her a couple of drinks and get her talking, she would discuss why she works alone. She had one of her kills stolen from her, some horrific undead monstrosity that lived in one of the local graveyards. To hear her tell the story, a man that she was working with as a partner used all of her intel, all of her time gathering information about this beast, and betrayed her by killing it himself and claiming all the credit. And so we traveled across the undulating landscape for many days, scouring each and every crevice in the various rolling hills, until, finally, we discovered the lair of the horrific beast. During these weeks together, she became more and more interested about my strange being. She discovered, through trial and error, perhaps not wisely, what the various fungus growing upon me do. She discovered their healing properties. She discovered how they can bend the mind and allow you to see things that you shouldn't be able to see within this world. In fact, during one of these late night sessions, she took upon herself to pluck one of my mushrooms, and she began to wander off into the darkness, claiming to smell the creature, claiming to have found its scent. Perhaps she was right, for in the morning we followed the trail and discovered the lair of this beast. The fight lasted a long time, the winged beast flinging acid and venom, swooping down with claws like daggers. However, with her trusty crossbow and wicked flashing sword, Antoinette was able to slay the beast, but not without receiving a grievous wound herself. During this battle, I was more or less unusable, merely wishing with every bit of my core for her to be victorious. Little could I do with the magic I had available to aid against such a vicious foe. However, wounded and dying from the venom coursing through her, she crawled over to me, plucking from me one of these magic mushrooms, one of the last of them, 
for only a small handful remained. Plopping it into her mouth, she slept for seven days and seven nights upon the windswept grasslands next to this decaying monstrosity. When she awoke, hale and healthy, she looked upon me with a new light. No longer was I some discarded, random, strange artifact. I was a powerful force of healing, a powerful force of magic for her to overcome the vicious enemies she swore to defeat. Hacking off this creature's vicious tail, the dead snake-like protrusion became her trophy and won her her coveted position as master. Although certainly deserving of retirement and with her future secured within the guild, she did not rest. It was not her way. Antoinette Dubois continued to have these adventures, continued to hunt the various monstrosities of the world. Of our various adventures together, one stood out in particular to me. A great victory for Antoinette Dubois against a powerful, twisted, and monstrous horned creature. This horned creature, the size of a great fallen oak with a horny ridge protruding along its brow, fiercely guarded its nest, located deep within the long crumbling and destroyed ruins of one of the great cities belonging to the long-dead empire. A local lord, perhaps even a petty king, desired a tome rumored to be located deep within the city, a tome which could be used to cleanse his lands of this magical taint which has infiltrated the whole world. Much like this horrific beast territorially guarding this crumbling ruin, he wished to purge his lands of beings like this. This lost, powerful tome of cleansing was guarded by this fierce monstrosity. While nowhere near as powerful as the manticore, this horned horror was neither wise nor agile. In the middle of the summer, I summoned a blizzard, turning the ground slick and the air misty. Antoinette was able to sneak in to this monster, plant explosives throughout its lair, and bring the whole entire edifice crashing down upon it. Luckily, the tome was intact, and Antoinette was yet again rewarded handsomely for her efforts. The king then went on, as these humans seemed to do, to violate his word about the tome, and instead used it to twist the land even more, its twisted creations becoming nothing more than his puppets. However, per guild law, Antoinette Dubois was helpless to do anything about this wicked king, and before long we left that kingdom for another, chasing yet more rumors of monsters to be. We lived an active life together, this keeper and I, and I was used at her beckoning for many different things, to grow vines out stretching across in the jungle to form a bridge, to cause rock slides, avalanches, plants to grow, and even at my highest level, to cause an earthquake. These things drained me before long. Almost all of my fungus were removed from me, leaving but two or three. Where they once were, now blackened spots remained, a testament to the work Antoinette and I did together. Now looking rotten and speckled, drooping leaves, and well-worn wood, 
I was beginning to show my age, but I was happy with Antoinette Dubois. We did good things. We rid the world of unnatural monstrosities, made people's lives better. However, as one might expect for a woman like this, she met her end doing what she did. Still young and only slightly out of her prime, with her fierce red hair tumbling behind her, the wind-whipped mountains of the great north beckoned us, climbing these peaks towering above the forest below. Nested the great rock, the winged monster, a gigantic foe. At first the battle went in our favor, however, this great winged monster, many times larger than the manticore, picked up the fiery Antoinette. I went tumbling from her pack into the nest below, a gigantic nest, its babies the size of elephants below. Up in the sky the rock took Antoinette. Up into the sky, circling above, they went, until she went tumbling to the ground below, and that was the end of Antoinette Dubois. And I lay among the many, many branches of this great nest, watching this monstrosity collect Antoinette and use her body to feed its babies, piece by piece, her various wondrous artifacts, her crossbow, her sword, across the valley. And in this great rock's nest, once again I laid, although for only a year this time, for I was working up a great storm, incorporating the swirling winds above the mountain and coercing them to form great storm clouds above. However, this still took me a year, and in that time, I watched the babies grow, transforming into their own monsters. I watched countless people get torn apart before my eyes, their blood splattering the nest. The babies grew and took off on their own to form their own monstrous nests. Few came to these towering heights to try and kill the beast. However, I was going to be free. As always, when time progresses, if you have access to the wonderful music made by Mousehole Press, we will be taking 40 seconds to pass a year. Otherwise, I recommend pausing the podcast, sitting in silence, contemplating, well, it's kind of dark, but the horrific sights of people being torn apart by a great winged beast, all the lives snuffed out and fed to its babies, then those babies going off to make their own nests, an ongoing cycle which we were not able to end. For even though we were not alone, accompanied by this beast. It was not a good year. Take that time now, 40 seconds on the clock, and we will be back shortly. At long last, the year was up, summoning all of my power, summoning all of my frustration and anger. I harnessed a great storm, a storm of the ages, wind and lightning and rain and hail It all came bearing down on the nest, blowing it asunder from the rocks, and coming crashing down upon the forest floor, far, far below. Hurtling through the sky I went before burying deep into the soil, where once again I lay, although not for long. Whether by divine providence or dumb luck, someone happened upon me very quickly as I lay upon the forest floor, now no longer resembling what I originally was. 
having come crashing down to the forest below, what few leaves I had left have turned brown and frail. I drained most of my energy making that storm to escape that nest. Having been picked clean of most of the mushrooms that covered my body, they've left behind black, rotten spots like those of a leper. My leaves, once vibrant green, are now few and brown. My once sprightly, strong branches near the top have a certain droop and sag to them. Split down the middle, long ago, the wound is never fully healed, although I now have some power left to me still. Once again, resting upon a bed of wet leaves and soil, I can barely feel the touch of the sun, the dampness of the rain. However, my time on this forest floor was short, for walking down the path came my newest keeper, a traveling merchant who hails from distant lands, lands beyond this continent I'm from, a land of sand and desert and dotted oases and great caravans that cross them. Their name is Azar, and they are whimsical and who always have a twinkle in their very distinct, glistening, inky black eyes. They have traveled far from their homeland in order to become a legendary merchant trader, perhaps to make initial contact with this land that is so different from their own. Although merely human like all the rest, this whimsical traveling merchant possesses a knowledge of the forbidden arts. However, like all the keepers before him, he is not perfect and has an insatiable lust for wealth. This strange robed man pulls a wagon laden with salt from his homeland, something that is a precious commodity in this part of the world, something which fetches a fair price. Although, that is not the only thing Azar trades in, for hidden amongst the piles of salt are trinkets that have been pilfered and traded for from his own homeland, a place of mystery and intrigue and powerful magi who rule over the land. This wagon of his is pulled by the strangest looking horses I've ever seen. Two humps they have, and a mean spirit. Azar constantly yells at them, swears at them, and curses at them. Yet these strange humped horses do not care. A couple of guards Azar always travels with, for salt is worth its weight in gold in these lands. Less than a day I laid upon this bed of rotten leaves and damp soil. Azar driving their caravan around a corner, cursing at the sudden shift in the weather that came tumbling down from the mountains above, suddenly stops in the middle of the trail. Their guards turn to regard them, yet Azar's eyes scan over the forest floor, those strange inky black pools glistening in the morning dew settle upon me, and now I do suspect that those eyes, those dark pits of eyes, aid Azar in being able to see magical emanations, which aids them in their true trade. Before long, I'm picked up from the ground, tossed in the back of the wagon 
Buried deep in the salt, other items, their worth unknown, buried alongside me in the long journey ahead as we traveled out of the woods and into the great farmlands that dot the countryside. However, to my greatest horror, even buried beneath the salt, I can hear the cries and wails of the villagers, the farmers, the simple folk. They cry and bemoan the great floods that came from the mountains, caused, I suspect, by the storm that I made. This feeling of responsibility is crushing down upon me. This feeling of responsibility for the lives I've cost. I begin to lose my enthusiastic nature, and my once stout branches sag a little more. The only thing about me that has not changed is my natural curiosity. I wonder about this Azar. I wonder what they will do with me. Finally, at long last, our journey came to an end. At the end of the road, upon the great shores of a great ocean, the last true major city of this land, surrounded by a great stone wall and a moat and a drawbridge, with its slums spilling out into the countryside. They were spared the worst of the flooding, although now a refugee camp it has become. The flooded lands all around. Inside this great city, powerful guilds took hold. Azar was known amongst them as a great trader, bringing salt, greatly desired by the nobility, and of course, the magic objects buried below. For the better part of a year, we stayed in this city, making connections, slowly selling off the salt to stay afloat, living a life of luxury. But still, Azar was never satisfied. They came here to try and make a profit fit for a king. And so we learned from one of the guilds of a strange tower that dotted a lonely island far off the shore. We contracted a ship to take us there, and upon arrival at the tower, Azar's strange inky black eyes grew wide and glistening. They mumbled to themselves as we got in a small rowboat and rowed to the rocky island. I have never seen this level of magic before, even amongst the powerful magi of my home. This entire tower, though it looks of stone, glows bright and glows to my eyes. My own natural curiosity influences Azar, I think, for they are usually a little more conservative. But first off the rowboat and onto the strange island they were, running up the shore with wild abandon, a bundle of artifacts in their hands, jostled, jangled, and rubbing against each other. These other artifacts, I don't think, well... I don't think they think. Do I even think? I don't know. I have no way to communicate with no mouth, no hands. All I can do is rustle my leaves and input my thoughts out into the world. At first what appeared a simple tower was nothing but. For days we camped outside with the Tsar yelling, screaming, and cursing at the door. After seven days and nearly spent, a strange winged beast flew down from the tower. The first living thing we've seen upon this island. A head of a bat, the wings of a bird, and the talons of an eagle. This strange, monstrous creature 
yet no bigger than a pigeon, lands upon the top of the door to the tower. For a while it stares and glares at Azar. Finally, Azar, nearly at their wit's end, simply asks, What do you want? I wish to speak to the master of this tower. One week we have camped here and I have waited. The strange, winged creature stares back at Azar, before finally squawking out what is coming but never arrives. Azar nearly loses their head. This is not something they expected, a test before being able to enter this tower. Stomping around, nearly at their wit's end, I think and ponder the answer to this riddle. What is always coming, but never arrives? I think of all the different possibilities. And, dear listener, so should you. Take a moment, pause the podcast, think about the answer. Perhaps you will get it right, and you will be rewarded with treasure beyond measure. However, back in front of this tower, with this strange creature perched above the door, Azar sits and ponders and does not speak. They do not know the rules. How many guesses do they get? These things are not known. I have my opinion about the correct answer, and I think hard towards Azar with it. For some reason, I catch their eye, and Azar picks me up off the pile of other treasures. You're something special, aren't you? Azar whispers to me, their inky black eyes boring deep inside of me. At first I thought you were nothing more than a shaman sticker, something just infused with latent power. I rustle my leaves, what few remain. The mushrooms, well, three remain. Wiggle in anticipation, and Azar smiles. Perhaps we can yet undo this door, my friend. And we sit there for hours, merely staring. Finally, Azar gets up from the ground and heads back towards the door. Tomorrow is all they say, and the door cracks open, and Azar, overcome with joy, rushes inside the tower and is met by a strange individual. This individual, clothed in heavy black robes, merely sits silent at a great stone desk upon a great stone throne, unable to see their face, unable to make out any features other than two glowing red eyes. This strange, dark individual raises a hand and the door shuts behind Azar. A little nervous, but ever confident, Azar smiles, proud of being able to answer the riddle. The figure behind the desk never speaks. Azar rambles on and on about the treasures they've acquired and about the wealth they wish to desire. At the end, the figure behind the desk only wanted me. The rest of the trinkets, worthless. Nothing more than hollow, empty magic. I, on the other hand, am different. I can think. In the end, Azar left with a gem, a powerful gem, a gem that glowed bright to their eyes. However, this strange robed figure had the last laugh, for the gem was worthless in the eyes of Azar's home. Azar wished to go back, become a powerful magi. However, this gem was worthless, being simply created of magic. It would only trick those who could not tell.
So I was left in this tower with a strange robed figure, traded for a bauble, a worthless gem. Azar, happy and flush with pride, didn't even think twice about me. Turning back to the boat with the various magical baubles in hand, Azar left me on this windswept tower on this barren island, alone with the strange, robed, red-eyed individual who never left that desk. At last I thought I had come to somebody powerful. I was probably right, but I did not know, for the individual simply tossed me deep into a storeroom upon a jumble of other artifacts, so like me, yet so different at the same time. For the next millennia here I lay, a thousand years passed by, and finally our time progresses, a millennia. This is four minutes long. If you wish, once again, to listen to the soundtrack available from the publisher, I would do so, or else pause the podcast, sit for four minutes of silence, reflecting upon what it would be like to sit in an empty, dark storeroom amongst another jumble of priceless artifacts. During this time alone upon a pile of mostly inert treasures. There was one in particular in the pile, one of particular importance, a brooch, a brooch that belonged to the powerful wizard that once ruled this tower, a brooch given to his one true love, a brooch that kept her young and beautiful for all of her life. However, unbeknownst to her or the lich, This brooch was draining her soul. Trapped inside of it, she now lives. Long I lay there before I realized she was there. Although we could not really communicate over the centuries that passed, we were able to impart information between each other through force of will and small movements. I learned a lich... Her love now is. He is wasted away, slowly rotting from the outside in. I know not if she still loves him or not, yet he still yearns for her. A twisted wretch he has become, with one goal, one ambition, to collect an artifact powerful enough to restore her to what she once was. Although I cannot say that she is my friend, over the millennia that pass, she kept me sane kept me together, kept me from losing it. However, of course, a millennia is a long time, and I changed, I changed, I grew dull, my leaves falling and failing, the final mushrooms nibbled from me by a stray rat. I now lay without leaves, droopy branches, and a scar from ages past running down my spine. Now nothing more than a bare branch covered in black, moldy spots. The centuries turned into millennia as I lay there, discarded, abandoned, and forgotten. The only sense of movement and change is every once in a while, a strange, robed individual would come in, take an artifact or two, perhaps leave something else, and disappear out the door. 
I could catch a glimpse of that man seated at the table, the stone table and stone chair, never moving, never turning, staring straight forward as years and years and years rolled by. During all this time, I had nothing to do but think. I did think back to my creators, those druids in the circle of trees thousands of years ago. What would they think of me if they saw me now? At first I thought they would be ashamed and sad at the rotten decay that fills me. However, thinking further, reflecting upon the years, these druids, these strange individuals, so close to nature, would respect it. I've lived a full life. I was born, I had a long time with power coursing through me, and now, here at the twilight of my existence, leafless and growing moldy, they would be content. They would see it as a fulfillment of the life cycle. I will go full circle, I'm sure, returning nothing more than to the dust I once was, back to the land. If only I could ever get out of this treasure room. And so I sat and waited, the years counting on by, countless time flickering past with little change. I no longer have the power to do much at all. Merely my spirit that inhabits me is all I have left. One time, a flying insect came into the room, and I tried to coerce it to do something for me. I couldn't. My powers barely extend beyond my branches, which I can barely wiggle. However, in my core, I know something still beats, well, metaphorically speaking. I'm not gone yet, and perhaps I will do something great with the last of my strength. At last, a thousand years have passed. At last, something is going to change. It happens suddenly without warning, without any notification. A great deal of noise could be heard outside of the vault door. The screams of some girl and a cold, stern warning from a voice without remorse. The vault door banged open at that time, and dozens of robed individuals with blazing eyes and cold hands started removing the treasures one by one and piling them in a circle drawn upon the floor in front of the great, nameless lich. At last, his millennia-old plan has come to fruition. The various people he has convinced to serve him have finally located a descendant of his one love. Thousands of years in the past, they traveled the world. Finally, they found her, a splitting image, nearly identical. By night, these robed, cloaked figures descended into the village, slaughtering her family and kidnapping her. Many months they traveled across the world, a world now changed from the one this lich once knew. Across many continents, humans have spread across the great sea to a new land. This is where the woman was discovered and brought back to the tower, the lone tower on a lonely rock in the middle of the sea. Laid before the lich on the floor, the artifacts piled around her. The lich finally moves, gets up from his throne. It takes what feels like an age. He slowly moves around the table as he pulls back the cowl of his robe. Nothing more than a skull with two red fiery orbs. The woman screams in horror and fear, but there is nothing she can do. 
The brooch of the lich's long-lost love is brought out of the vault. I can hear her pleading, desperately begging her one love not to go through with this, to just remember her as she was, to spare this girl, for it would not end well. Whether the lich heard or not, I do not know, but I had yet one more key role to play. Given that the amulet and I were the only two with sentience, the rest of the artifacts are nothing more than power. For a year, the ritual continues. For a year, the lich stands there, unmoving, working the veins of magic. One by one, the cultists fall to the ground, their life energy sucked from them. One by one, new cultists are found. Before long, we run out of cultists beyond the very inner few, and they bring random villagers from nearby towns across the sea. One by one, more lives are snuffed, and the corpses pile in the corner until they spill out of the tower onto the lawn in front. This horrific ritual nearly complete, I am brought before the lich, who moves yet again. His cold, dead, bony hands grasp me, and I perform my last act, an act I did not ask to do, for this horrific ritual is nearly complete. The final words of magic are complete, and I absorb the energy from all these artifacts imbued with the life energy of all the people who have been sacrificed for this ritual to be completed. Power I have not known since the night upon that mountain when I cast down the rock nest. The power I have now is far beyond that. This magical tower acting as a conduit for it. The very last, as I hover above the girl's breast, I am plunged deep inside, striking her heart. My energy flows into her. Nothing more than a shriveled twig. The lich merely cast me aside, drained and broken. This powerful energy courses through the girl. Her soul has been swapped with that of the woman in the brooch. The brooch itself is crumbled to dust, its energy spent, infused into the girl. What happens then, I cannot tell. All I know is what I felt. I felt the energy of this powerful magics coursing through the land. Spirits are restless. The dead shall walk. I, I am tired. I am spent. I'm finally ready to crumble into dust. My only wish would be to return to nature, to the woods, the streams, the rivers I crave. But that is not what I will be granted. Instead, I have been used to unleash this horrific plague upon the land. The last thing I remember before it all goes dark is of the woman upon the floor standing to her feet, turning towards her once love. And that is all I know. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the One Guy, One Roll podcast. This was episode one of season zero, which I am calling One Guy, One Roll, One Shots. I hope you enjoyed listening to this exceptionally long podcast for me. As I mentioned in the introduction, this is going to be a little more rough cut than the primary podcast I run, which is currently Iron Sworn Starforged. I 
think this game is absolutely fantastic. Once again, it is Artifact by Mousehold Press. It really actually kind of makes you feel something having spent so long with this artifact. And I just have copious amounts of handwritten notes about everything we've been through. It really is a transformation from birth to crumbling to dust. I hope you enjoyed listening to this journey as much as I did creating it. I don't know how many other one-shots I'm going to do. I kind of find this format a little bit easier than what I do with the primary content, just with my current work schedule and everything. However, I certainly have not finished with Ironsworn Starforged and Nikora and that more structured style of formatting. However, if you did enjoy listening to this podcast and you wish to toss me a couple of bucks for a coffee every once in a while, do have a Patreon over on patreon.com slash one guy, one role. The members of the solo role-playing guild have over there really make this whole thing possible and help me to continue to keep the quality of this podcast where I want it to be. As always, I have to give a shout out to my various patrons over there, including Journeyman James, Journeyman Stefan, Journeyman JL, Journeyman Wes, and Apprentice Sam. Thank you so much, y'all. You guys are fantastic. Really appreciate your support. Other than that, if you are interested in Artifact yourself, go check it out over on Mousehole Press. It's really an outstanding game, and I have nothing but praise for it. They also have another one which you take over uh, the role of a sci-fi ship in space called Bucket of Bolts which I will probably feature on Season Zero one-shots on some other time. It'll be a little bit of time. This uh, was a fairly emotional journey, actually, and certainly the warning at the beginning of the book to make sure you're mentally feeling all right before you partake is true. It's not a... I mean, I guess it could be, in the end, a positive story, but generally speaking, this game is about change and time and just decay rust and all that stuff that comes with a long stretches of time and silence and i really like the mechanic where you sit in silence or listen to the music they've created and just contemplate time and change and rest anyways i could ramble on forever and i'm gonna wrap this on up here as always, I've been your player, host, and GM, Hero Cities. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day, and stay safe out there, y'all.